truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, from my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternal blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are, there, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son." And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our, father's, our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And verse 14 says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Father, we thank you for the truth that we sung today, that you are a good, good father, that you are perfect in all of your ways. And we thank you, Lord, that we know also, as the words declare to us, we are loved by you. And so this morning, Lord, as we dig into your word, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would liberate our minds from any presuppositions we bring to the text, that we would be open and available to hear your truth. Lord, may you be exalted in this time, God. I pray that you speak clearly and that we would hear clearly, and above all things, that we would respond in faith to bring you glory and bring you honor. In Jesus' name, and everyone said... Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. If you do not have an outline, um, would you just raise your hand? want to be sure that you get an outline, that you are able to follow along um, with me as I go through the introduction of the sermon. And I want you to also be sure that you're able to take some notes. Um, I'm going to just forewarn you today and probably for the next few weeks as we walk through Romans 9, 10, and 11, uh, we're going to definitely like kind of slow down a little bit. And so I am a preacher, and so I, it's, it's hard for me just not to preach, right? Um, but what I will tell you is that I, I feel like it's really, really necessary to do some teaching, and that means we're going to look at a lot of scripture to really understand what God is communicating in these verses because I want to be sure that we understand God's heart, that we understand God's mind as much as we can in the scripture, as I think that that's so important, right? Because this is some difficult terrain that we're about to embark on. I mean, there's a lot of controversy. If there's any place in the book of Romans where you want to skip, it's 9 through 11. You want to just skip that and just go. You're like, hey, glory to God. Nothing can separate us from his love. I therefore beseech you, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's Romans chapter 12, verse 1, right? Like, you want to just skip that. And so because we're not afraid of the scripture, right? We're going to jump right in, right? We're going to look at what the Bible teaches us. But just to give us some level of recap here, um, 
To this point in Romans, we have seen all that all men are equally accountable before God. No one can keep God's law perfectly and earn their own salvation. That we are all born into Adam and that Jesus is the last Adam who makes it possible for us to be forgiven and made right with God. That we have died to sin, the law. We will continue to battle the sinful nature, but we are free from its power and dominion through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that we are secure in the purpose of God as, as, we, are from the, as, as we are being sanctified and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So all of my English majors, you're like, what on earth was that? That was like the biggest run-on sentence ever, right? With parentheses to boot, right, that I didn't even mention. And, and the reason why I did that was intentional. First of all, I, I've told you before, I'm, I, I should have really been like a Greek um, speaker anyway because you know, there's a lot of run-on sentences in the Greek. But what I, what I realized is this, is that there is a lot of ground that we've covered. When you look at all that, that's like a mouthful, that's a mindful. And there's a lot of stuff that we have looked at in the book of Romans because Romans is such a rich book of theology, and so God has built such a solid foundation by inspiration through the Apostle Paul up to this point. And he wants us to grasp these truths that are there. And so we see all of these things and those parentheses are there for you. So you can actually look at it and say, okay, this is what he's talking about here. About us being secure, about us being sanctified and what God is doing. And so now we turn a corner where the Apostle will address directly God's dealings with Israel. In chapter 9, he's going to deal with their past. In chapter 10, he's going to deal with their present and in chapter 11 he's going to deal with their future and so your outline has the different breakdowns and the portion where we are at in the text of scripture but it's it's really important because I want you to realize this is that there are uh, many people that will study this book and they're like why did Paul even do this like it doesn't even seem necessary for Paul to do it because they're thinking what you and I are thinking and we'll look at this in the context in a moment and it's like this is a book that's written to Rome these are these are these are Gentiles why such information with regard and that has led many people to misinterpret what Paul is trying to communicate here and so here's what I want you to get is this is that while there are some difficult scriptures to understand we must keep this in mind we must keep this in mind. The truth in Scripture will never contradict the character of the God revealed therein. We must keep this in mind. This is something that has to be at the forefront of your mind anytime you read the Bible, not just Romans 9. When you go to the Old Testament and you'll hear people that are, that are anti-God, anti-Christ, they're anti-Christian, they're anti-religion, and they talk about the Old Testament. Well, God commanded the Israelites to, you know, to do things like genocide. And so it, you know, they all of a sudden paint God to be this monster. And then some people ignorantly are like, well, that was the God of the Old Testament. And I'm like, no, no, no that's the same God yesterday, today, and forevermore. Right? Like Jesus doesn't change. And I know that that's that specifically is speaking about Jesus and the book of Hebrews, right? But we do know this, Jesus is part of the Trinity, amen? amen? So that means when he's saying that about Jesus, that applies to all of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so just so you can know how I deal with things like that in my mind and my heart is this. I actually think, and some of you may disagree with me, I actually think God is being merciful by allowing those children to be executed in that particular judgment. You want to know why? Because I don't believe that God has a bunch of babies burning in hell. Are you here? And so if those people were to grow up in rebellion against God because of what happened and they were in slavery, you know what the chances are? The chances are highly likely that God is going to have to execute judgment upon them as adults. But God mercifully goes in there, tells Israel to annihilate its enemies. And what God does, he does this justly, bringing judgment upon them because we know what? We know what Romans chapter 1 taught us. No one is before God saying, well, I didn't know who you were. 
I, I didn't know you existed. It, all of us have this testimony of who God is. You read from the book of Genesis, and God has communicated to us, and so God shows us things. And, and it's the same in the book of Romans. When we look at the book of Romans, we do not want to have the wrong picture or the wrong understanding of who God is. And so here's what I want you to think about this morning. We can always trust that God's choices are always good, acceptable, and perfect. We can always trust that God's choices are always good, they're always acceptable, and they are always perfect. I want you to know if you want someone to choose for you anything, God would be the one that you would want to choose for you. Are you here? And if, if you want someone to make the right choice every time, it has got to be God. God is the only one who will always make the right choice. He will always make the right choice. He will always make the right decisions. And his decisions are always good. They're always acceptable, not, not palatable, right? Not, not, not like we always want them, but they're always acceptable, especially to him, which is what matters. And they are always perfect. He doesn't make mistakes in the choices that he makes. And so, like I said, we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to be doing a lot of, a, a lot of digging here in the scriptures. And so the first thing I want to ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, God chose Israel. For the greatest purpose. God chose Israel for the greatest purpose. I need you to, I, I just need you to like let this sink in, right? For the next three weeks, we are predominantly, or the next three chapters, not three weeks, but for the next three chapters, we are predominantly dealing with, or God is dealing with the way that God has dealt with Israel. And so Paul is turning this corner. And what he's doing is he's now addressing what would be the natural question of those who are sitting in the congregation. And so here's what we have to understand. In reading through the book of Romans, as we get to um, chapter 9, we cannot take it out of the context of what Paul has already written to us about, what he has already communicated. We cannot forget about chapters 1 through 8. And we have to think about a few things. Like, number one, when you think about context, I think I said this last week. Most of the time when we read our Bibles, we're not thinking in the context of what is actually going on. We're not looking at what's going on in the historical setting or what's happening in those particular moments. We don't think that way. We're not seeing things from that perspective because what? Because we are so far removed from that truth, right? I told you guys about the movie, The Apostle Paul. I hope you guys went and saw it, at least thought about seeing it. It really helps you to contextualize so much of what was happening in the first century to the church. It helps you to really see what was going on because they do a really good job of painting the graphic picture of what was happening in the Roman Empire under Nero and you can actually see man this was a really bad time to be a Christian are you here this is a really bad time for you to be called a believer. It wasn't the same stuff like today, like when you make a commitment to Christ. Like you make a commitment to Jesus, maybe you raise your hand, maybe you squeeze somebody's hand, maybe you tell someone about it, maybe you go get baptized or something like that. Maybe you come to an altar if there's an altar call, and then that's really it, right? Like that's all you got to do. You make It may cost you some other things, but there's no real like, hey, you know what? For this commitment you're going to make to Jesus, you could literally walk out the door, be arrested, be executed. Like that's not a reality for us, right? Like that's not something that we even consider. And so those are, the, those are the things we have to think about. But also, when we think about context, we have to think about the audience. Who was Paul writing to? And, and if you notice something as we've gone through the book of Romans, something for me, I mean, I don't know about you if you've noticed this, but Paul is seemingly dealing with the Jewish people in the congregation a lot. Like, he really talks about the law a lot in the book of Romans. Now, you wouldn't think that's normal. And let me tell you why you wouldn't think that's normal. Because when you read the book of Acts, you know that the Apostle Paul is a master at communicating in context. 
And so when Paul is in the synagogue, you know what he's doing? He's running through the Torah. He's running through the prophets. He's running through the Old Testament because everybody's sitting in the synagogue. They know what that is all about. But when when Paul comes to Athens, what does Paul do when he preaches there? You can go back and read it. I can't remember which chapter it is. It's probably like 17, 19, somewhere around there in the book of Acts. But you are going to notice when he preaches in the Areopagus, what he does is this. He quotes their, their, their philosophers, Gentile pagan philosophers, and he connects the gospel through that philosophy. That's what Paul does. And so what Paul does not do here, and you'll also notice that in the book of, of Colossians, when you go back and you look at the way that Paul communicated to the church of Colossae, you'll notice that he dealt with the philosophy that was there, not so much with the Jewish people that were in the congregation, because he was primarily dealing with a different group of people. And so understanding who he's speaking to becomes so very important because Paul is addressing his Jewish hearers here and he's talking to them. You also got to consider the language that he's using. And I'll talk about this later, but commonality is big. Common sense is really, really important, right? But you know that common sense is based on common knowledge, right? So like if you go to some, you know, because I've, I've done marriage counseling with people and they're like, yeah, but he doesn't have or she doesn't have common sense. And I'm always like, well, common sense is relative, man. Like, where did you grow up? Like, you know, if you never had a washer and a dryer, like, you, you, you're not going to have common sense about the use of a washer and a dryer. Like, to me, a washer and a dryer is something that's common. But even in me saying washer and dryer, let me just ask you a question real quick. How many of you guys know what a washer and dryer is? Raise your hand. Right? So now, if I went to somewhere in a, back, in, 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 in a country somewhere where there's no electricity, no running water, and I start talking about washing machines overflowing, they're going to be like, huh? You know what I'm going to have to do? I'm going to have to spend a whole lot of time expounding on what a washing machine is. I'm going to have to show them pictures. I'm going to have to tell them what it's used for. I'm going to have to explain to them how this works because they probably don't have electricity. What I want you to notice that Paul does not do is he doesn't spend a lot of time breaking down everything that he says. When he's dealing with this in Romans, he quotes the Old Testament in, in chapters 9 through 11 more than any place in the entirety of the, of, of the book of Romans. He's doing this for a purpose because he is speaking directly to his Jewish audience. He's trying to get their attention. Why? Because up to this point, Paul has refuted so many ideas that the Jewish people have had. And so you know what the natural question is? This is what it is. What about us? What about us? I thought we were God's chosen people. I thought we were the people of God. I thought we were the children of God. I thought that was us. I thought we were the promised people. All this time, we've been thinking, we've been believing that, that, that following the law is the way you're telling us, no, that's not it. You got you to experience salvation by faith. And so all of a sudden, now Paul is really shaking this up for them. And so Paul, in compassion, led by the Holy Spirit, is saying, hey, let me talk to you about you really quick. Let's hone in on who you are and let's see what's up. And so the first thing we have, we look at verse 1. Paul says this. He says, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. And so I want to pause for a moment because before we jump head in and we get into the deep stuff in this, in this text, I want to ask some practical questions for us for application. There's not going to be a whole bunch of application today. But here's one place I want us to have some application. And my first question for you is this. Are you as burdened as Paul over the unsaved in this nation? See, because look at what Paul says here. He says something that's so important for us. He says that I have, look at verse 2, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. 
And then he paints a picture that looks back at Moses and he says, I could wish that I was accursed for my countrymen. In other words, it was like Moses when he was praying, he's like, God, you know, let me be a curse for them to take me instead of them. And God is like, nope, that's not what I'm going to do. And Paul knew this, but he's painting a picture to show the depth of the brokenness over the sin and over the condition of his fellow Israelites, which you'll see in the next verse here. He was broken over them. He was burdened continually over them. And so the question is, are you burdened over the lost in this nation? Does your heart break for those who are in rebellion against God, or are you just writing them off and like you don't even care about them? How about this? What about those of your homeland? Maybe you're not from the United States of America. Maybe you're from somewhere else. Do you have brokenness over them? Are you broken over their lostness? Or how about this? What about your family? Immediate family or extended family, are you broken over their sin the way Paul is? Because Paul is expressing extreme grief in his heart. He is expressing extreme grief, and what he says to us is so important. He says, I tell you the truth, in Christ, this is not outside of Christ. This is a burden that he has in Christ. And you know what? Because most of us in here, if we're 100% honest, we're not breaking down in tears. We're not anguishing in our souls. We, have, we may have moments that we think about the loss. We, there, there, there may have moments that we realize the eternality of hell, and we're like, man, if those people die, they're going to be separated from the love of God for all of eternity. They are going to be suffering once in a while that may grip our hearts and you know when that once in a while is it is when the holy spirit does a work inside of us it is when god reminds us of those truths and so what i want you to realize is that paul is saying that he that his conscience bears him witness by the holy spirit and so what he's saying is that this burden that he has for the lost people of israel guess what it came from god and so here's my other question for you do you think a man could ever love or care for someone else more than god do you think so you think that anybody could care more about someone than God does? You think anyone could ever love more than God does? No, nobody could ever love more than God does. No one could ever care more than God does. Nobody has given their only begotten son for all, uh, you know, those who would believe to, to, to be saved. Nobody's done that. God did. Because what? Because of his love toward us. And so he goes on to say in verse 4, and this is when he breaks down the, the Israelites, and he says, are Israelites who pertain, to whom pertain the adoption in, in the book of, of, of Exodus, God says that Israel would, is his firstborn. And so he talks about this adoption, the glory that we have there, the Shekinah glory of God that belonged to the children of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant was there. The covenants, right? What covenants is he talking about there? He's talking about the old covenant. The first covenant is what? It's the covenant of circumcision that he gives to Abraham. He communicates to Abraham about this promise. And then Isaac is born after he's given this promise, this covenant of circumcision. And then we have the covenant of... Of the law. The covenant of the law was given to them by Moses. But we also have another one in the book of Jeremiah when God speaks of the new covenant and he talks about the new heart that would be given to men. That is all pertaining to the children of Israel. The giving of the law, we see that in Moses again. The service of God, the priesthood was given to them and the promises. Every promise that was made regarding the Messiah to come was given to them. Regarding anything of God's provisions, all of those promises were theirs. Of whom are the fathers the father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now listen to this. From whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternal blessed God. Amen. 
And so here's what we have here. We have some parallels that John Stott, he actually points out because he wants to, he wants to show us why it is that these things have all been written down. Why, why, why is Paul writing this stuff in chapter 9? Why is he going into this in chapter 9? It is because he is trying to bring the parallels to what he just said in chapter 8. And so in chapter 8, he talked about what? He talked about adoption and sonship. He talks about that here in chapter 9. He talked about glory in chapter 8. He talks about it here in chapter 9. He talked about purpose and purpose of God. He talked about it in chapter 8. He also talked about that in chapter 9. He talks about foreknowledge, election. He talks about that in chapter 8. He also talks about that in chapter 9. He talks about being God's children. He speaks of that in chapter 8. He also speaks of that in chapter 9. Calling of God, he speaks of that in chapter 8. He speaks of it as well in chapter 9. Why? He's trying to show us. Paul is saying, look, I want you to know everything that I just said, it still pertains to you. It still pertains to you. None of these things have changed. The only thing that has changed is what? Is that Christ has come. See, the benefit of being the chosen nation of God are many, as we see here. But here's the thing that you got to get. The greatest purpose was to be the Christ-bearing nation. Are you with me? The greatest purpose of Israel was to be the Christ-bearing nation. Salvation, we know this. Jesus said this. Salvation is of the Jews, and it is to the Jews first. What is our memory verse? Our memory verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. What? To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so the words of salvation didn't just come through the, 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 the Jews, but it also came to the Jewish people first. God has not forgotten about his people is what he's communicating here. And what we have to realize is that that, is, that redemption is the grand narrative of all of Scripture. We talk about Scripture from the beginning. God is good, is he not? We sang about that. God is good. He's a good, good father. He creates everything good. He creates everything purpose. There is a, a perfect. There is no sin. He creates everything like that. And then what happens? A couple of chapters later, we don't know how long later, but a little bit after creation, Adam and Eve decide what? That they are going to eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They mess everything up. And then we see for, for thousands of years, what? We see the mess that men are making. And what is God doing? God is aligning his perfect plan. He calls this guy by the name of Abraham. Abraham is the one that's chosen. He goes to Isaac. He goes to Jacob. He calls, he calls Moses. After he calls Moses, he gives him the law, gives him direction, continuing promise, promise, promise. This prophet that's going to come after you, David becomes king. Once David becomes king, there's a promise he would have an everlasting throne, an everlasting kingdom. And all of a sudden, some, some thousands of years later, this little, this, this woman by the name of Mary gets pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and she has a baby. The angels come and declare, this is the Messiah. Messiah. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And so what God does is he shows us all the way up to here. This is what this has all been about. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. It's about this redemptive story. And guess what? Israel, you are the ones who get to have that glory. You are the ones that get to say, man, you, man, we, 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 we helped. We, we had Jesus. Hello. He came from us. There, 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 there's some bragging rights, right, if you want to say that. You can brag on that for a moment, right? But, but, but what Paul does, he shows, but it's not about you. There's nothing to brag about. Why? Because of this thing that we're going to talk about, which today we're going to deal with, which is election. I want you to deal with this second, or, or say this with me, this second thing. Say, man's choices don't nullify God's choices. Your outline might say choice, but it should be choices. Man's choices do not nullify God's choices. So the second thing we have here, look at verse 6. Verse 6 says this. It says, but it is not that God, that the word of God has taken no effect. 
Because what Paul did right now, right, what did he do? He breaks it down. He's like, hey, this is exactly the, all these things still pertain to you. And then it may seem like God's word is of no effect. Like because most of the Israelites at that time, they were doing what? They were rejecting Jesus. And so it would seem like God's word took no effect. Like God's promise to Abraham was taking no effect. Like that the nations would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. Like it has taken no effect. And that is not what God is trying to say here. That is not true. God's word has not failed in any way. He goes on to say in verse 7, he says, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. I'm going to read this and then we'll unpack it. They are not all Israel who are, who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Again, I want you to remember, Paul is speaking predominantly to his Jewish audience. And he's, and he's helping them to understand, okay, so you all remember this, right? You remember when Abraham was chosen. Right? But you also remember Abraham had another concubine, right? Because Abraham, he got impatient. Sarah thought this is never going to happen. And so she was like, hey, take Hagar. And so when he went ahead, he took Hagar, like any good man would have done, right? Mm-hmm. Bad idea. But anyway, he takes Hagar, and Hagar gets pregnant. Hagar has a child by the name of Ishmael, and Ishmael is now this son. He's the firstborn son of Abraham. And God says, but I didn't choose him. That's not fair. It doesn't matter. God is God. I didn't choose him. I didn't choose Hagar. You look later on, chapter 17 in the book of Genesis. And again, he's communicating there. And he's like, but let, let, let Ishmael be great before you. And God says, no. That's what he says. You can go back and read it. God is like, no. Nope. He's going to be great. He's going to have 12 princes, all this good stuff. But I have chosen Sarah, and you will have a son by the name of Isaac. He is the one that is the one that is chosen by me, the one who is the promise by me. I just want to pause for a moment because I want you to realize that if you look at the way that God works out his redemptive plan, you know what he always does? He always seems to take the weakest, the one that is most impossible, the situation that never seems like it could be, and he uses that person. That's what he does. Sarah couldn't have babies. We know that it was Sarah because what? Because Abraham went and laid with Hagar and she got pregnant. Hello. So we know that the issue was not with him. The issue was with her. And yet God opens her womb. And so we see that. So here's what we have to understand is that what Paul is saying here, first of all, for they, for, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Not everyone who is a national Israelite is a person of promise. Are you here? Not every person is chosen for the same purposes. The bloodline that flowed from Abraham, it flowed from Abraham to Isaac. It didn't flow to Ishmael. And, and I don't know, but some people always forget this. But Abraham, after Sarah died, Abraham remarried or something like that. And he got together with this woman by the name of Keturah. And she had a few sons of his, of his as well. Are you here? And so they were not chosen either to be the ones to carry what? The messianic seed. See, it's so important for us to grasp that word seed there because Paul references this in other places. And so what we have is that it seemed unfair, but check this out. God chose Sarah instead of Hagar and Keturah to bring forth Isaac. You know what God could have done? God could have put Isaac in somebody else's belly. He chose not to. 
He decided he was going to do something a certain way. And we know that Isaac is a type of Christ as well. To do what? To carry the promised seed. The point. This is it. This is the point here. This is the big point that you get from that whole portion there. Not everyone born as an Israelite is chosen for the same purpose. Are you here? Not everyone that is born as an Israelite is chosen for the same purpose. But Paul goes further because what does he say in verse 10? And he says, and not only this, but when Rebekah, so now here's the thing. The first argument is they're going to be like, well, you know what? Well it, well, it was fine because Sarah was his wife and Keturah, well, she wasn't, you know, really. And, you know, Hagar, she was an Egyptian. So, you know what? We couldn't, we couldn't pollute or contaminate the bloodline. And so they're going to be like, well, that's the reason why he chose Isaac. No, 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 no. He goes, he goes further, he further explains, and he says, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, right, that is, that is Isaac, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. So what does God do here? Again, God goes on ahead and he breaks protocol for the purpose of election. That's what he does. He breaks protocol. What do I mean by the fact that he breaks protocol? What I mean is this, is that he decides, again, that he is going to take who? He is going to take the younger, the lesser. He's going to take the, him, and he is going to make him the one that is going to be the carrier of this promised seed. There was twins in there. And God made it. And listen, there's no mistakes, right? We believe that God is the author of life, right? That's what we believe. And so what God does is there's twins in this womb, and God is making a point. And his point is here, fleshed out for us in the book of Romans, that God has made a choice here. Now, now, now here's, here, here's, here's, here's where the problem is. I'm, I'm going to tell you what the problem is when we, when we just read that text, especially verse 11. When we read verse 11, two things happened to some of you in the room. One, one, one is this. When you heard election, you automatically thought salvation. That's what happened for some of you. As soon as you heard that word, something clicked inside of you that said, oh, that's talking about salvation. That's what it's talking about. I need to let you know that's a bad way to interpret scripture because God makes choices outside of salvation. This happens to be one of them. Are you here? It had to do with salvation, but it's not about eternal salvation or damnation. What we have here is God making a choice. That's what the word there means. That, that Greek word means to make a choice. It means to make a choice. The other thing is that, that we have to understand is that this is not referring to election to personal salvation or even national salvation, but God's purpose promised to Abraham carrying on the seed. That is what this text is talking about. God is talking about his purpose in election to do what? To bring about the seed that was going to bring salvation. And so let's just recap this for a moment. Election always equals choice, not always in reference to the saved. Now, I just want to say this because some of you are going to be like, well, Bishop, every time that I see the word elect or I see the word chosen in the scriptures everywhere else that I can remember, and when you go home and you can search this out yourself, I think you're going to find that almost every other time that is used in the New Testament, it is dealing with God's people as being chosen. And it's talking to God's people, whether it's in the New Testament or it's talking in the Old Testament. And here, there's no different. The question is, what is the choosing about? And so I want, you to, I want you to see this, actually the way that it looks in the Young's Literal Translation, the way that that verse 11 is, is written, and that way you can see what I'm saying is accurate. For they being not yet born, neither having done anything good or evil, that the purpose of God, notice that, that the purpose of God, according to choice, might remain, not of works, but of him who is calling. 
And so what, what is happening here is that we have a choice that God makes. God chooses Abraham, right, out of his father's house. Genesis chapter 12, God chose Abraham out of his father's house to be a blessing to all nations. This is the promise. That is the moment that we see the promise being, that, that, that we see God calling somebody, and what he's pointing to is this, and Abraham may not know this, and I don't think Abraham does clearly understand this, but back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 is the Proto-Evangelion. It's the first gospel, and what happens is God says, I will put enmity between you and the seed of the woman. Again, singular singular. It's important that we hear this, that it's a singular seed that God is talking about. He's speaking of this seed that is going to come and is going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent's going to bruise his heel. And so we know what? That Jesus was bruised, right? He was beaten for our transgressions. We understand that. And so this occurred through what? Through the seed. And then we have Abraham who is called out of his father's house. Genesis chapter 17, God chose Isaac over Ishmael as the seed of promise. And what do we see here? We have to let scripture interpret scripture, right? And that way we can understand what Paul is talking about. So Galatians chapter 3 verse 16 is our first reference there. And we find what? That is a reference to Genesis chapter 22 verse 18 with, with him being a type of Christ. Being born in the flesh doesn't mean you are the seed. Are you here? Being born in the flesh does not mean you are the seed. That, that's, what, that's what Paul is trying to communicate here. And so what do we see in Galatians chapter 3? I'm going to read this verse. You can turn there if you'd like. I'm not going to wait for you to turn there, though, so you can do it if you want to. But here's what it says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. Paul says this, Now to Abraham and his seed were, promised, were, were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, with an S, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Christ is the seed of promise, and that's the reason why I'm telling you that the greater purpose that Israel had was to carry this seed of promise as God's chosen people. They were chosen to do that. And so when you look back at Genesis chapter 22, again, in verse 18, that is the portion of Scripture that is at the end of, of um, Isaac being up on the mountain, probably the scariest day of his life when his father was going to actually execute him. And what we have is that God stops him, and at the end of, the sentence, at the end of that, God says, him this in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice and so it seems like there's some condition there I'm not going to get into all of that but what we have here he says in your seed and that seed is what that seed is in Isaac in your seed all the nation will be blessed and then Genesis chapter 25 God shows Jacob now listen to this the lesser or the younger one over Esau the greater to bring the purpose of God to pass again what is the greater purpose what is the purpose the purpose is to bring forth Jesus the seed the promise fulfiller it is not of will or works that one is chosen for God's purposes that is the point of that second portion it is not of will, it is not of works that God chooses you. That's why he says in there, he's like, they hadn't done anything good or they hadn't done anything evil. And that's the reason why some people twist the text to make it say, oh, this is talking about salvation. No, it is talking about a choice that God makes. It wasn't based upon, listen, Jacob was a shysty dude. Hello. Jacob was a deceiver. 
God chose him over Esau. And listen, if it was my choice, right, I would have probably chosen Esau. He was a hunter. He was a dude that was going to be able to fight for his, right? Jacob was a, and I, 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 listen, I, I don't have an issue. I don't cook, right? But, you know, Jacob was like, let me go cook. Esau's like, let me go kill something, right? Like, I'm like, I don't know. I would want Esau to be the guy to carry the seed, right? I'm just saying, right? Because, like, he's going to fight for it. Like, Jacob might be, like, easier to give up. But you want to know what? Jacob didn't give up. We're going to talk about Esau in a moment because this next verse here, where it really gets deep. But here's the thing is that we understand clearly it is not of will, it is not of works that God, is, that God chooses people for his purposes. It's not because you're greater or better than. It is not because of that. It is because God chose. He doesn't tell us why he chose. He doesn't, he doesn't give us the, the grand picture into his mind like, why did you decide to do it this way? I just decided to do it that way. We can look at certain things, but I mean, and again, we're going to get there in a moment when we talk about the potter, not now today, but next week when we get into the whole potter conversation. What we have here is we see what God is doing. So y'all tracking with me so far? I know I have like three minutes and 49 seconds to finish um, this last part here, but third thing, say this with me. Say God's choices, God's choices are, complicated, are complicated, not arbitrary. Not arbitrary. God's choices are complicated. Are you here? God's choices are complicated. I believe that this is one of the most misused verses in the entire Bible. And it is verse 13. It is this. It says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let me ask a question just really quick. I want, to, I want you to just be honest. I want you to raise your hand for me. If you understand what that means, raise your hand. It's okay. It's good. You're good. Right? If you're not sure what that means, raise your hand. Okay. All right. What I want you to realize is that when we look at a scripture like this, it is complicated to look at because we see something. And first of all, I think the reason why this verse is misused so much is because of one thing. And I'm going to say this, context, context, context. You have to know how to read the scriptures. And you have to understand what Paul does is he introduces another scripture to the storyline. And that next scripture is what? He says, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So the first thing you need to understand is this. This verse was not spoken at the same time the other verse was, and the apostle was not ignoring this fact. Again, he is speaking to an audience that is mixed, but he's singling out the Jewish hearers who are familiar with the history he is speaking of, like having memorized the Torah familiar with the history. Are you here? He's speaking to a people that he doesn't have to go back and like, well, let me break this down. Let me remind you of what happened here. When he says certain things, light bulbs are going on in their head. Things are happening inside of them that are not happening to you and I. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever read the book of Malachi? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you, oh, obviously the rest of you have never read the book of Malachi. So then that means that none of you have read the book of Malachi lately. Hello. <laughs> not lately. The book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It is the last book. So what Paul does is he does this intentionally. Number one, he gives us like two bookends of what has happened in God's plan of redemption with Israel. He gives us the first part of the book, which is what? Is that God says that the older will serve the younger. That's the first part. And then he bookends it with the book of Malachi. Now, what is the purpose of the book of Malachi? Since you guys have not read it, let's just turn back there really quick, just because I think it's important for us to see the beginning of the book of Malachi so we can understand the rest of the book of Malachi and what is the heart and intention of the author as he is writing or the prophet as he is being inspired by God in the book of Malachi to, to communicate to us these truths. 
Book of Malachi, y'all there? Say so if you're there. Book of Malachi, it says this. Look what it says. It says, the burden of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So who was the burden for? It was from the Lord, and it was towards Israel. This word was specifically to Israel. God is not speaking to Esau in these words here. He is speaking to them. And look at what the first thing is. He says this, I have loved you, says the Lord. So what is the purpose of this book? It is to affirm his elective love unto the people of Israel. He's communicating to them. Now listen, you guys have been in bondage. You guys have gone through Babylonian captivity. You guys have experienced my judgment for all of this time. And you're questioning whether I love you or not because I haven't done certain things. But what God does throughout the rest of this book is he rebukes them and he lets them know, hey, you know what? You guys are saying I don't love you and you're acting a fool. But listen, I do love you. But he goes on to show you how he loves you. And look what he says. He says, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? And he says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Again, God is reminding them, says the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom, and I want you to know who Edom is here. Edom is representative of Esau. Are you here? That's what he's saying here. Because Esau is representing the Edomites. That's who, that's who the nation is. God is speaking to them about a national situation, not about a, brother, a brotherly rivalry. He's not talking about that. Jacob and Esau, they represent two nations. Jacob represents Israel. E Esau represents Edom. And so he's saying this is what happens with Edom. He says, even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. And so in other words, God is still at work throughout the nations of the world. But what he's saying is throughout this is, listen, they're going to go ahead and try to build up, but I'm not going to give them the grace to do that. I'm not going to give them the strength to do that. I'm not going to be on their side. But you know what you're going to do? You're going to pollute my offerings. That's what you've been doing. You're going to go ahead and steal from me. That's what you've been doing. You're going to go ahead and dishonor me. That's what you've been doing. And guess what I'm still going to do? I'm still going to send this guy. His name is John the Baptist, by the way. I'm still going to send this prophet Elijah ahead of you that's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the sons. And then I'm going to send this Messiah to come. Because what? Because I love you. Because I love you. And so why is Paul using these words? Because he is reminding his Jewish hearers. And notice, notice please, that he utilized the word Israel in chapter 9 that he hasn't used up until this point like he is here. He's using, he's, because he's trying to point them to God's heart to the nation. That God's heart for the nation of Israel has not changed in any way, shape, or form. The second thing that I'll say in, in, in this about Malachi is that God is affirming his love, his electing love for Jacob, which is Israel, in and by comparison to his rejection of Esau the, or Edom. Not, now listen now, this is not speaking of eternal salvation or damnation, but temporal blessing over Jacob, the nation, not the person to preserve them because of the purpose, Jesus, the seed. Are you here? 
This is what this is what Paul is doing. He's simply communicating and he's saying, "Hey guys, this God hasn't forgotten about you. God hasn't stopped loving you. And the reason why I have such a burden is because God's heart is burdened, right? And we're going to see that later on that God extends his arm to a rebellious people every day all the time. And so God shows this mercy. He shows this love toward his people, but he is not talking about an elective love that has to do with damnation. The third thing is this, when used in a comparative manner, the word for hate here has to mean loveless. Has to mean loveless. What do I mean by that? So I'm doing a class right now, right? And we talk about this thing, um, this, this doctrine that I really, I'm going to be honest with you, I do not like this term at all, which is common grace. Number one, it is not in the Bible. Not in the scriptures. You do not find common grace in the scriptures. You find common grace in the scriptures in principle. But you don't see God differentiating between his grace toward this one and his grace toward that one. What I did find was common faith. That's what I did find. But what I understand is this, is that God has a love for his enemies, does he not? Is this not true? He has a love for his enemies, but there's also another way that God feels. And so Luke chapter 14, this is why I want to give you some scriptures so the way you can think about this. Luke chapter 14, and by the way, I'm, I'm glad you guys are taking notes and pictures, and that's all good. You can keep doing that. Um, it's good for you. But I am going to send this out and put this on Realm so you guys can actually see all of my notes, and that way you'll have that. I know Minister John will love that because he hates taking notes. But anyway, um, Luke chapter 14, verse 26, what does Jesus say? Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, he must hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, if you do not hate even yourself, you're not worthy of me. Those are heavy words, are they not? Do you think Jesus wants you to hate people like that? You think he wants you to hate your spouse? You think he wants you to hate your kids? Of course he doesn't. What is he doing? He's saying in comparison to your commitment to me, if someone was to look at how much you love me and your devotion to me, they would be able to say, man, it's like, you, it, it's, it's like the love that you have for God is so much greater than the love that you have for them. Some of y'all are like, man, I need to repent. You're right. It's a high call. It's a high call because I think that our love for God should be greater than any other love. That's what Jesus said. That's why I think that. But then we have this other scripture because you're like, well, Bishop, that's New Testament. Okay, let me go back to the Old Testament. Book of Genesis, chapter 29, verse 30, verse 30 and 31. Scripture says something there, a really important story here, which, which, by the way, it doesn't make it into this narrative here, but it's really interesting because it is about Jacob, and it's, and it's a, this crazy story that happens when Jacob is at Laban's house, and Laban makes him marry Leah. Remember that story, crazy story? Like, I don't even know. Anyway, that, that's another thing, but I don't have time to get into all that. But here's what, he, here's what happens. The Bible says this, that Leah was unloved. If you're reading in the ESV, it says Leah was hated. You want to know why? Because it is saying that it's the same word that is used here for Esau, that God hated Esau. It's a comparative thing. It is not that God had ill will toward Esau just because. Like, oh, Esau, before he was born, I hate you. See, that's why people take this out of context. Before he was born. People then start believing stuff like kids are burning in hell. Like, are you kidding me? Like, that kind of stuff doesn't make sense, but that's the kind of things we attribute to God when we misapply and misuse the scriptures. And so what we have here is we have an issue. And so the fourth thing that I'll say, and I'm going to lose some of you right now if I haven't lost you already. But some of you may, and, and I pray that you don't, but in your heart you may walk out the room. Just be respectful. Please don't walk out. The fourth thing is this. God loves his enemies and hates them at the same time. It's complicated. 
Now, I'm going to use Mike Winger's example because I think that this is the only example that will help you to actually rationalize what, this, what I just said here and understand that this is actually possible in a human sense. I want you to imagine, and that God forbid this ever happened, but I want you to imagine that you have two children, and one of those children intentionally murders the other one. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you going to hate that kid that killed the other one? Are you going to love them? It's going to be complicated, isn't it? For us, we, have the inca- we, we, we are incapable of really loving and hating. And that's why God doesn't give us the option. God doesn't say, hate your enemies and love them. No, he says, love your enemies, right? Because he is the only one that is morally capable of doing what? Of loving them and hating them simultaneously. He's the only one that's capable of doing it. And he points this out to us. This is what we see in the character of who God is. And so this, this, let's look at some scripture at this, right? And I'm just going to point you to these scriptures again. Time is going to get the best of me. But scripture clearly shows us that God both loves his enemies. We see this, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? So we know that God's love is there. Better said, right? And, and when I say better said, because some of you are like, yeah, yeah, maybe that doesn't mean that. Listen, it means that. But anyway, for those of you that may argue that point, Romans chapter 5, 6 through 11, what does Paul tell us there? He tells us that, you know, some people may die for a righteous person. Some people may die for a good person. Nobody's going to die for their enemies. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. Are you here? While we were his enemies, God loved us. But then, you know, we have also, we have other scriptures like the book of Psalms, chapter 5, verse 4 through 6. You know what the Bible says there? It says that God hates workers of iniquity. You know what, you know what Psalm chapter 7, verse 11 said? It said God is a just judge and he is angry with the wicked every day. You know what Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6, verse 6, 6 or chapter 6, verse 16 through 19? It says this in the beginning. It says that God hates six things and seven of them are an abomination to him. And he goes down this list. But you know what the last two things on the list are one of them is he hates liars not lying and he hates those who sow discord among brethren what 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 i want you to notice is this is that god's hatred is expressed toward active sinners are you here God's hatred is not toward people who just woke up one day or people who were born one day. That's not how, God's, that, how God operates. It is active sinners. This is why Jesus had to die in our place. And so going back to Esau, wrapping this up, Esau wasn't hated by God at birth. He rejected. He rejected his birthright, Genesis 25 to 34. It, it tells us clearly that he rejected his birthright. He gave it up for some soup. And then I want you to notice something. It's like it doesn't stay there in the Old Testament. It makes it to the New Testament. God actually comments on it. You know what he comments? And you write it down. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16 through 11. It says that there would be no fornicator or profane or godless person among you like Esau. Are you here? God shows us the issue that he has with Esau. Esau earned his judgment from God. So what we see over here is that God doesn't extend that mercy, the same type of mercy that he extends to Jacob because he has a different purpose with Jacob that he does to Esau. However, if Esau would have repented truly, he may have never gained his birthright back. He would have never gotten that back. But what he would have done is he would receive mercy from God. And if we interpret, I just want you to understand this. If we interpret Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, and, and we interpret that to say that that has to do with salvation, then you know what we have just done? We have just, we have just twisted scripture completely because what we are saying is that everybody who is of the lineage of Esau, being an Edomite, they have no chance of salvation. Because God is speaking nationally there. That's not what the scriptures is trying to communicate. 
And so, in wrapping up, this verse does not indicate malice toward Esau from birth, only that he was not chosen to carry the seed and be the lineage of the promised one. Did you get that? That's what this verse says. That's what this verse is talking about. And so, listen, it's tough stuff to deal with. I know some of us are like, man, I don't know, I don't know if I can see God like that. Listen, that's who God is. He is holy. He is righteous. He is all wise. And so, my closing question is this. Do you trust that God's choices are always best? Do you trust that his choices are always best? Sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Sometimes it's like, man, I don't know, God, you might have you missed that one. You might have you got something wrong there. There, must, there may have been a miscalculation in heaven. No, no, no. Hmm. No. And I'll close with verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteous, unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the tough truth in your word. We thank you for the, the truth that is there to set us free. And Lord God, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would breathe just faith into our hearts, peace in our hearts, and understanding that you are all wise, that you are in control of all things, and that you, Lord God, you do not change. Your ways are good. Your will is good, even when it doesn't feel good. And so, Lord, I pray for us that we would rest in these truths, even as we wrestle with them. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Come on and give God a hand of praise.